Take your Bibles and turn to Hosea chapter 13. We're going to be finishing the book tonight. Um, and it finishes on a really, really very good note, by the way. I know there's been a lot of uh, uh, very difficult passages that talk about uh, punishments for their sin and, and how evil they were and a few highlights uh, in the whole section of the book that kind of implied that uh, God is letting His mercy be extended to them and invites them still in spite of their sin to, to turn from their sin and return to Him, repent, and He would forgive them. And uh, He's going to continue uh, to talk a little bit more about the fact that they had left their first love, uh, which is the love of God, and began to serve the gods of the Canaanites. But he's also going to be, in these last two chapters, giving them the understanding and us the understanding that although he will not strive with man forever, as he tells us, he will be forgiving them and allowing them to return to the land. And this is a great news for people that had been so unfaithful because it tells us of God's faithfulness. And of course, we all need to remember that when he talks to them about the things that they had done to uh, offend him and uh, really alienate themselves from him, it really is a reminder for us that we need to be very careful with how we need to be unwilling to go after the gods of this world, the things that distract us, the things that turn us from serving our God. We're just as susceptible to that kind of thing going on in our own personal lives and also in our national life. We have certainly seen that as well. And my prayer is that this nation will come to its senses and realize that uh, they are really not much different than the people of Israel in Hosea's day. So here we are in chapter 13, and hopefully, as I said, we'll finish this book tonight, and it ends on a good note. Uh, finally, we'll see that as we proceed. But verse 1 of chapter 13 begins by saying, When Ephraim spoke trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offended through Baal worship, he died. Now, I know it's not really quite as clear as it might have been, but it's the wording of the Hebrew writer uh, in terms of how he's expressing a contrast between what they once were and what they had become. So in the first part of the verse where he says, when Ephraim spoke trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. What Hosea is saying is there was a time in their early history as a tribe of Judah, a tribe of Israel, that they were uh, lifted up and recognized by the other tribes as a leader in the nation. They were, in a sense, trembling when they began to understand that God was with them. And if you go all the way back to the wilderness journeyings, while they were at Mount Sinai, when God revealed himself on the mountain and spoke to them, it tells us that the entire nation of Israel trembled at his voice. And that's when they said to Moses, whatever he tells you, we will do. 
Well, Ephraim was among the largest of the tribes in that time, and it is from that day that he's speaking of when Ephraim spoke trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. He was a great tribe, recognized and exalted as such, but he began to very quickly, when he uh, led the other nine of the ten tribes, go astray from serving Jehovah God by establishing the worship of the calves in both Bethel and in Dan. And they were the responsible ones, ultimately, of bringing all ten tribes down to that level of what God considered to be an adulterous situation between him and them. They had been married to him, and he was telling them that they were no longer his people. But there's now going to come a time when he's going to change that, and it won't be because of anything that they have done. And I'm mindful of that fact when we look at our own lives, that it's not because of anything we have done that justifies us before the Lord. He just simply has chosen to take us in. And that's what he's doing with the nation of Israel. He's taking them back. In spite of the fact that they had turned from him, he's letting them become once again his people. Just as Hosea did with Gomer, his wife, he took her back at the very end. That's the picture that is shown to us in this wonderful book of Hosea. Well, verse 2 continues to say, Now they sin more and more and have made for themselves molded images, those calves that I just mentioned in Bethel and in Dan. And it says, Idols of their silver, according to their skill, all of it is the work of craftsmen. They say to them, Let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. That was apparently their instruction to all who would come to worship. Worshipping idols that men had built. The book of Psalms warns against such a thing, and actually in more than one place, talking about the fact that these idols that they have made, they crafted with their own hands, are absolutely nothing. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, they cannot hear. They have hands, but they don't touch. They have feet, but they can't walk. All of that is true and is repeated on more than one occasion in the book of Psalms. Isaiah talked about the fact that they would cut a tree down and out of that tree, a part of that tree they would make for firewood and a part of that tree they would cut into the shape of some form of idol that they could worship. Uh, and he saw absolutely no sense in that. It made no sense to him. It makes no sense to God, and it's an abominable thing as far as God is concerned that they should have crafted any idols in any shape or form because it was against one of his commandments that he had given them through Moses. Thou shalt not make any graven image before me. But they did, and they worshipped those images. They kissed the calf, if you would, in their sacrifices. Verse 3 says, Therefore they shall be like the morning cloud, and like the early dew that passes away, like chaff blown off from a threshing floor, and like smoke from a chimney. They're here, they're seen, they're gone in a moment's notice. Well, verse 4 says, Yet I am the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt, and you shall know no God but me, for there is no Savior besides me. 
take a look at what God is saying here to this adulterous, idolatrous, evil, wicked people. I am the Lord, your God. He said earlier, I am not your God, you are not my people. Now he's telling them, in the end, they will be, once again, brought back into fellowship with him. That's God's grace and mercy to all. And it's a graceful thing that he is doing in your life and in mine, exactly in the same way, by the same loving kindness, by the same willingness to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, by the same love that he has expressed to this people, he has also expressed that same love to us. There is no Savior besides me. That's an important statement. The word Savior is Yeshua, and it is the name of Jesus, Jehoshua, uh, or Yehoshua. It is, God is salvation. I am your Savior. And of course, we know in the Old Testament, His being their Savior is manifest in the life of Jesus Christ, our Savior. He became flesh and was among us to show his salvation to us in a very personal and wonderful physical way. But God here is saying, I am your salvation. So he basically is saying, Jesus and God the Father are one and the same. And that's what the Old Testament does speak of in a vague sort of way. But in the New Testament, it is revealed more plainly and very clearly. Jesus is God, and he is the Savior. Through Isaiah, we see God saying in more than one occasion, I am your God, and I will share my glory with none other. And in the New Testament, Jesus says in his priestly prayer in John 17, Father, restore to me the glory that I had with you from the very beginning. John tells us also in chapter 1, in that gospel record, that God, before all things, in the beginning, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's no mistaking in the Word of God. It's very clear. They are one. Jesus himself said, I and the Father are one. He told Thomas when he said, show us the Father, Jesus said, Thomas, have you been me this long? You've not known I am he? That because you see me, you have seen the Father. So it's very clear in the Old Testament and the New Testament that God is informing his people that he is their Savior, our Savior, and our Savior Jesus it has been revealed to us in this day and age in which we live. What a wonderful thing that we have as a privilege to serve our God in these last days. There is no Savior besides me, he said. And then in verse 5 he says, I knew you in the wilderness, in the land of great drought. When they had pasture, they were filled. They were filled and their heart was exalted. Therefore, they forgot me. Isn't that amazing? God was with them in the wilderness. He saw them through the entire wilderness experience. He brought them into the land, the land filled with milk and honey, the land that was so, so very plentifully full of all that they needed. 
and it was such that they became overwhelmingly prosperous. And that's what he's saying here. When they had pasture, they were filled. They were filled with their heart, and in their heart was exalted, and that was when they forgot him. When they began to realize that they had so many wonderful blessings from God, they began to not attribute it to the Lord, but to their own abilities, their own uh, talents, their own uh, methods of taking care of their own needs. They just simply forgot God. It's a terrible position to be in. That's really the position, I believe, of this nation that we are living in. They have forgotten God. And it's so very, very obvious they don't want anything to do with God any longer. Well, I'm reminded when I see the effect of prosperity, the effect of uh, blessings of the Lord, how so often, in especially the book of, say, Judges, for instance, that period of time after they entered into the land until the time of David, they had several who were brought as judges for the nation to care for them, to deliver them from their enemies. And there was such a cycle of very obvious events that took place over that period of several hundred years. They entered into the land, they began to prosper, they left their God, they forgot their God, they attributed their prosperity to themselves, and as a result, God brought judgment, usually at the hand of some of the surrounding nations, and they oppressed them, and they became oppressed by those neighboring nations to the point where they finally cried out to their God and God brought a deliverer and delivered them from their oppression and after a season of time they became prosperous again and the cycle returned. It continued to happen over and over and over and over again. And every time that it did, we see recorded in the scripture, they did what was right in their own eyes. I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Proverbs and I want you to see something that is I believe, a good standard for any one of us to apply in our own lives, to avoid such things as they were susceptible themse uh, subjecting themselves to. It's found in Proverbs chapter 30, and I'll begin reading with verse 7 uh, through 9 of Proverbs 30, where it tells us these things. Proverbs 30, verse 7. Two things I request of you, Deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? That was their problem. But he also says, Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. I don't want to be so poor that I end up stealing so that that would offend the Lord. And I don't want to be so wealthy, so prosperous, that I will forget the Lord. So better for all of us to remember there's a balance for us as we serve the Lord that we should seek after. A balance that makes it so that we're not overly prosperous, we're not under the poverty level, so that we would be either against God by offending him in one way or the other. Their problem in Hosea's time was they were prosperous and they left their God. They forgot their God because of their prosperity. 
Verse 7 says, So I will be to them like a lion, like a leopard by the road I will lurk. I will meet them like a bear deprived of her cubs. I will tear open their ribcage, and there I will devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. Judgment is coming. By the hand of the Assyrian forces. And the Assyrians were a very, very terrible people. And I've mentioned that in the past more than once, I know. But it's important for us to realize they were probably one of the most terrible people, groups, in conquering other nations with what they did to the people they conquered. Well, in verse 9, he says, O Israel, you are destroyed, but your help is from me. The psalmist says, I look unto the mountains from whence cometh my help. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. The psalmist recognized that. This people in Hosea's day did not. But he's telling them, your help is from me. I will be your king, verse 10 says. Where is any other that he may save you in all your cities? Do you have some other king that you can rely on? By that time, their last king of the nation was already in prison in Assyria. They had no king to deliver them. And he's saying, I am your king. If you would only recognize it, I would be able to deliver you, but you're not yet willing. So he says, he asks also, and, and your judges, to whom you said, give me a king and princes, where are they? They're all gone. And it's interesting, he says in verse 11, I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. Most likely that's a reference to Saul because it is the only king that they had asked, remember Samuel for, in that last time of the period of judges before they had a king, they came to Samuel and they said, we want a king like all of the other nations around us. And Samuel went to the Lord. He was grieving because of what they were demanding. He knew that God was to be their king, but they were rejecting God. And so Samuel came with a tearful prayer to the Lord. Lord, what am I supposed to do? They're rejecting all that you have set up. I'm being rejected. But God reminded Samuel, Samuel, don't be upset because they're not rejecting you. They are rejecting me. And I will give them a king because they're asking for it. But it wasn't his perfect will for them. And he let them know. And that king became exactly as God prescribed him that he would be. A man who would abuse his authority and, and take much more than he should have from the people and make many of them become servants of him and men in his service in their military that would be built and it would be a very costly experience for them. Ultimately though, God was going to give them a king of his choosing and it was King David and he brought David on the scene at the appointed time and it was then that he would allow a man to rule on the throne in ultimately Jerusalem over the whole nation of Israel. But he was a man after God's own heart and he was a kingly man in every respect. 
but a godly king. And that was what God required. Unfortunately, after David died, although Solomon started well, he didn't end up very well. And over the course of time, that Davidic dynasty would find several bad kings in a row and then occasionally a good king that would restore them to a time of uh, serving the Lord and, and trusting in the Lord, a time of revival, but it didn't last. It didn't enter the heart. Every time that took place, it ended up turning back again, but God never allowed judgment to fall on the southern kingdom until finally, after a couple of years, a couple of hundred years later than the time that Israel fell, God said, it's enough. But he still had his plan. He had promised David that there would be one who would sit on his throne, a descendant of himself. But that ended up becoming a bit of an issue for the people of Judah because when the Babylonians brought them into captivity, there was no king on the throne of David for the first time since the time of David. And it didn't really look very good for them. And since that time, there has not been a king on the throne of David. And so the people of the Hebrew nation, the Jews, have been without a king seated on David's throne for these many, many years. It began what is known as the time of the Gentiles. And that time of the Gentiles will ultimately come to a close when Jesus sits on the throne and he is indeed a descendant of David and a rightful heir to the throne and he's coming for that purpose, to fulfill the promise to David that God had made in Second Samuel chapter 7. Back to Israel though, they were rejecting their king. And he says, I gave you a king in anger and I took him away in my wrath. But then again, he says in verse 12, the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up, his sin is stored up. The sorrows of a woman in childbirth shall come upon him. So again, the judgment is going to fall. And again, he says in the latter part of verse 13, he is an unwise son, for he should not stay long where children are born. So the idea is that he's not going to hang around uh, and he's not going to be around for very much longer because God is going to bring judgment as the birth of a child is for certain, so is the judgment of the nation. And then in verse 14, he brings this promise. I will, ransom, <laughs> I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. I'd like to take a portion of this before we get into the latter part of that. What he says in the beginning of verse 14, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. The concept of being a ransom for the people implies that there is a cost that needs to be paid. And he, he says, I will be the one who ransoms you, I will pay that price. Take a look with me at the book of Psalms, this time 
Turn to Psalm 49. Psalm 49 is a very beautiful psalm by David, and it talks about the fact that we are relying on the Lord God, and he's calling on the people of God to recognize that he is the God who has promised them great and mighty things, both high and low, rich and poor. They all should be willing to turn to their God and accept Him as their Lord. And he begins to then focus on what God has promised in the middle of Psalm 49, beginning with verse 6. And he says there, Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. What God is saying here is they cannot redeem themselves. They cannot provide the ransom. They can't possibly pay the cost of their sin. For the redemption of their souls is costly, and then he says, again in the end of verse 8, and it, the redemption, shall cease forever. The cost, the ransom will be paid. And because of that, they will be able to live eternally and not see the pit. That's what God promised through the psalmist. And what God is saying through Hosea is very much the same thing. In verse 14, I will ransom them. I will pay the price, the full price, the costly costly penalty of sin cannot be paid by anyone. We have no ability. I owed a debt I could not pay. He owed nothing, but he paid that debt on my behalf and on your behalf. What a wonderful God we serve. I will ransom them from death. And then the latter part of verse 14, and again, I'm going to read it as it is recorded here in the New King James Version, and now I want to talk a little bit about the deviation from that to what Paul records for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as a quote to this verse. Here in the New King James Version, O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. Those two statements are completely different in other translations. And I'm referring now to the New American Standard, which I think most of those of you who aren't using the New King James might be using the New American Standard, where it says, instead, O death, I will be your plagues. It says a question. O death, where is your, probably not sting, but the idea is the same, punishment. O grave, where is your destruction? Or where is your portion? Where is that which you are deserving of? They're asking a question instead of making a statement. And when the Jewish scholars around the time of 400 or so B.C. wrote the version of the Hebrew Bible in the Greek language, it was known as a Septuagint. 
that translation by Jewish scholars translated these verses or these phrases in, in verse 14 exactly as it is given in the New American Standard. And I'm convinced that that's the version that Paul would have quoted from, the Septuagint version of the Hebrew Bible, because he was in a time when the Greek language was the common language of the day. And so he used the Septuagint extensively in the quotes that he made. And so we find it again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the, the resurrection chapter, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is no longer a, an issue for the believer because we have been delivered from these things. He has redeemed us. He has ransomed us. In Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 20, you don't need to go there, but I'd like to read the one verse that speaks of Jesus Christ as our ransom. He says of himself, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Paul also says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 6, that Jesus gave himself a ransom for many. That is the very truth of the Word of God. He is our ransom. He has redeemed us, paid the price in full, so that death does not have any sting any longer, and the grave does not have any victory over us, cannot hold us, because we are His. Verse 15 says, Though he is fruitful among his brethren, Ephraim, an east wind shall come. The wind of the Lord shall come up from the wilderness. Then his spring shall become dry, and his fountain shall be dried up. He shall plunder the treasury of every desirable prize. Samaria is held guilty, for she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their infants shall be dashed in pieces, and their women with child ripped open. That's again the terrible consequence of this sin and the judgment that is about to fall by the, at the hands of the Assyrian nation. Well, verse four, uh, 1 of chapter 14 begins the final epilogue, if you will, of this entire book. And it's good news for Israel because he implores them. He makes this final appear, appeal to them in verse 1 of chapter 14. O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away my iniquity. Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. God is saying, you will make this appeal. He will heal their land. He will restore them to the land. Ezekiel 36 and 37 will be, he says, fulfilled. And by the way, that has been fulfilled. Ezekiel 36 and 37 talk about the dry bones in the valley that are brought together and sinew put upon them and then flesh upon them and they were to stand and then he would breathe life into them. It's a restoration of the nation of Israel in the land of Israel physically. And that is what is being promised. And he's saying, ask me for that and I will give it to you. Interestingly, at the end of verse we have another bit of a discrepancy between the translations. 
My translation, the New King James, says in the end of verse 2, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. Not a real good translation. But the original word is calf in the Hebrew language, a bull which was used for offerings. So sacrifices is a similar phrase to what was originally stated by the Hebrew word used by Hosea. We will offer the bull of our lips, the sacrifices of our lips. Makes a bit more sense. However, there is another word that is very, very close to that word for bull in the Hebrew language. And the word for fruit is almost identical with the exception of one letter missing from the word. So in the original language, the word here in verse 2 is parin. But the New American Standard dropped the name, the last letter in the word, and translated fruit, which is peri. Again, it's very close, and it makes sense to add this word here in this place instead of a bull, because it's the idea of the fruit of our lips, offering of praise to our God, the sacrifice of praise is what God calls us to. So they both make sense, but they're just looking a little different in the translations that we have. And by the way, in verse 8, the word fruit is indeed used by Hosea and translated as fruit by all of the versions that we have. So it's just a matter of the interpreter's sense of what was being said by the author that causes them to use one word or another. And it's not that they're wrong. It's not that they're uh, misleading they're just trying to help the reader to understand the meaning of this passage that we have before us. But verse 3 continues and says, Assyria shall not save us. That's a fact. Assyria is going to destroy them. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say any more to the work of our hands, You are our gods, for in you the fatherless finds mercy. This is the beginning of God's message to his people of restoration. He says in verse 4, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from him. Do you see the mercy of God here? I will love them freely. That's an awesome statement by a God who has been rejected by his people over and over and over again. Still, he brings them back to himself in the end. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from him. I will no longer be angry at them. I will be like the dew to Israel, he says in verse 5. He shall grow like the lily and lengthen his roots like Lebanon. His branches shall spread. His beauty shall be like an olive tree and his fragrance like Lebanon. He's reminded of the beautiful trees, the cedar trees in Lebanon, the scent in the forests of Lebanon, was at one time something that was world-renowned. And there are still cedars in Lebanon that are very, very large trees. Uh, and they are very fragrant. And of course, if you have ever had any familiarity with cedar, like a cedar chest, it's one of the most wonderful smelling woods that you can buy.
He says in verse 7, those who dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall be revived like grain and grow like a vine. Their scent shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Think about what God is saying here. He's going to cover them once again in the shadow of his wings. And that is something that we all need to remind ourselves that daily we should walk with him and allow him to cover us in the shadow of his wings, to protect us, to guide us by his spirit, to lead us and to comfort us and to encourage us and to instruct us, to be with us throughout our entire days, walking before us, beside us, behind us, and keeping us upon the rock that is a solid rock, which is Christ our Lord, our sure foundation. These are the things that we want to be constantly mindful of. And he's saying these are available to us, but he's saying that to us through this people who have been so rebellious, so far from him, so unwilling to turn from their sin. And yet he's saying this is the end result of all of that which is going to happen, the punishment that they will be having to endure. It is not going to be the end of this people. There is a remnant that will survive and they will return to the land and they will repopulate and they will be like a vine that spreads its branches throughout the land. Again, one of the Psalms talks about the fine vine that had been planted by the Lord and it spread its vine branches all the way to the Mediterranean Sea to the west and all the way to the, Mediter- uh, to the uh, Euphrates River to the east. They were a vine that God had planted. They were a fig tree that God had enjoyed its fruit thereof. Those are things that remind us of the fact that we should be also bearing fruit. John chapter 15, read that passage and remind yourself constantly of the fact that he desires for us to be attached to the vine Abide in me, he says, and I will abide in you. Stay attached. The Lord God will prune the vine, but he wants to do that in order for us to bear much fruit. And he wants his people Israel to bear much fruit also. He says in verse 8, Ephraim shall say, What have I to do any more with idols? I am done with them. Finally, they will come to that conclusion. I have heard and observed him. God says, I am like a green cypress tree. Your fruit is found in me. Let's bear fruit, people. They were told that's God's will for them. It's God's will for us as well. We are to bear much fruit. So now he ends with a couple of, in this translation question, statements in other translations, but the context is the same. He says in verse 9, Who is wise? Let him understand these things. So he's saying, you should understand. If you seek wisdom, you will find it. I love reading the book of Proverbs and seeing how often God speaks to his people. Seek wisdom. The beginning of wisdom is the fear, or the wisdom is the beginning of the fear of the Lord. It's wonderful to seek wisdom. And he says, when you seek it, you will find it. And you will be blessed by it. You will be made to enjoy the wonderful blessings of God. He's inviting them here in this passage. Let him understand these things. Who is prudent or who is discerning for the ways? Rather, who is discerning? Let him know them. He's saying, you should know the truth and the truth will set you free. These are the promises to Israel. These are the promises to us. 
we must take this book very seriously and understand that what God has spoken to them, He's speaking to us as well. Finally, He says, For the ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. I'd like finally to turn one last time to the book of Proverbs and read with me the latter part of Proverbs chapter 1. Again, we're so blessed to know that God speaks to us regarding His desire for us to have the wisdom of the Lord, which is available to us. We should know the things of God. He asks again, who is prudent? Who is discerning? Let him know those things that God has spoken. Who is wise? Let him understand these things that God has presented. For the ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Well, chapter 1 of the book of Proverbs, beginning with verse 20. Read those wonderful words of God with me here this night. He says in verse 20, Wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open squares. She cries out in the chief concourses at the openings of the gates of the city. She speaks her words. How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? For scorners delight in their scorning and fools hate knowledge. Turn at my rebuke. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you because I have called and you refused. I have stretched out my hand and no one regarded because you disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes. When your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind when distress and anguish come upon you. He's saying the same thing here in Proverbs as he told the people of Israel through Hosea. And then he says in verse 28, Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. It's too late. Then they will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. It's too late. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They chose not to accept the knowledge that was available to them. The fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom. They would have none of my counsel and despise my every rebuke. Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled to the full with their own fancies. For the turning away of the simple will slay them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But, finally, the last verse of this wonderful chapter of the book of Proverbs, but, I love that word, it usually means that God is going to say something in contrast to what he has just been saying. There is hope for those who would simply listen. But whoever listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. That is the promise of God. That is the blessing that he wants to pour out to his people, to the people of Israel in Hosea's day, and the people of God who serve Him in this present day. We have been ransomed. We have been given life abundantly. We have been given eternal life. We have been given an inheritance beyond imagination. We can call on Him daily for our every need. And when we do, it pleases Him to give unto us, His children, good gifts. It is it's without a doubt in my mind that our God wants to do these things for us in these last days. 
He wants to use us. He wants to bring us to a place in fellowship with Him that we could never know except but by the Spirit of God who dwells in us. What rich blessings we have available to us if we would simply put our trust totally in Him. People of God, the days are running out and we have little time left. We are the light. Let us shine that light in these last days. Be filled with the Holy Spirit of God and know that He is near. Trust in Him always. In Jesus' name, amen.